the Brent Nunn Podcast, where you and I get to sit down and talk to some people who have cracked the epic combination lock that is the music business. These are people I've met over a decades-long journey in the music industry. Scrappy and clever folks. From turmoil to triumph, disarray to discipline, we're about to find out what they know. Here we go. Today, you and I sit down with the original voice of Siri. Starting in 2011, she was the voice we all became acquainted with. A voice that needed to be, quote, otherworldly with a sense of humor, according to the original engineers. Our guest is Susan Bennett. Susan's first love was music, learning to play piano by ear. She's also a vocalist and played in a number of bands. Her winding career brought her gigs singing jingles before she dabbled in voiceover work, for which she was a natural. She became the voice of Tilly, the first automated teller in Atlanta, and she's the voice at Delta departure gates all over the world. She's done prominent voiceover work for Disney, IBM, AT&T, and many, many others. After she came out as Siri in 2013, she did the morning show and late show circuit, including a hilarious run-in with David Letterman. And eventually, she ended up on stage with a speaking career, including a TED Talk. She also landed gigs singing backup for Burt Bacharach and Roy Orbison, who have 11 Grammys between them. Her story is awesome, her career is cool, and she sat down with us to tell us all about it. I'm pleased to introduce... Susan Bennett. Welcome, Susan Bennett. Hello. Nice to have you here. Good to see you. Yeah, good to see you. I thought we would just start right at the beginning and go back to the early days and and what it was like growing up as a child and when you got involved with music um, and and what life was like early on for you. Well, life was uh, always involved with music. Um, I was uh, able to play music by ear. I just have that gift. And so I started playing the piano at age four or so and started taking piano lessons not long after that. And uh, so I've always been involved with music in in some way, shape, or form. And um, then when I was in high school, I started to sing. I got involved in uh, musicals and things like that. And uh, and I continued doing that in college, too. And then I started getting actually paid for doing music. I was uh, in my first band nice. in college. So uh, that's the history. Then I got married uh, shortly after graduation uh, from college and moved to Atlanta, Georgia. Right. And that's when I really started getting involved in uh, singing and playing out in public and um, <clears throat> also singing, uh, doing studio work. Okay, great. And I did a lot, sang a lot of jingles and backup vocals and things like that. And then um, one day, I was you know had finished singing a jingle with a, a group of people, and the voice actor who was supposed to read the copy for the spot that we read for uh, sang for didn't show up for whatever reason. And so the studio owner said, "Susan, you don't have uh, an accent. Come over here and re- read this copy." So I did, and it was very successful. And that. That was the beginning of my voiceover career. So Amazing. It's funny. I've yeah. noticed in the entertainment business, a lot of folks, 
not, not everybody. I mean, some folks decide, oh, I want to be a singer, and then they go and try to become a singer. But there are also a lot of folks who wind up somewhere where they never thought they'd be. And it sounds like a little bit of the case with you as, as a voiceover actor. That wasn't really... A- absolutely. Because this was, a, you know, years and years ago. So this was before voiceover became a thing. Right. You know, before, before everybody in the world wanted to be a voice actor. And could be, because it's so easy to have your own studio now. As long as you have right. a smartphone, some sort of mixer, a, <clears throat> a microphone, and a closet. <laughs> yeah. So what does it take to be a voiceover actor? Or like, I guess, for you, you, you worked your way into it, but did you have to have a, your own recording studio? Did you record remotely? How did that work? Well, no. Back in the day, uh, actually, it was much easier. It's actually easier to get into voiceover right now, but it's harder to get jobs. Because there are, it, you know, the auditions are going to so many people that you're, you've got so much competition right. now. So when I first started out... Is that if, because people have the ability through GarageBand and a microphone to do an audition and send it in blind, and so there's yes. just more competition? Yeah, it's because of the technology. And unfortunately, um, now that everyone who's hiring people, they're, they're not used to hearing things the way we used to hear things because uh, everything's coming through little tiny speakers and, mm. you know, AirPods and things like that. Right. And so to me, it, you know, a lot of people getting involved in voiceover are amateurs. Mm. And, um, you know, you don't usually hear that on big national spots, but you definitely hear it on local spots. So, you know, it's really hard to tell. When I first started out, Someone wanting to do an advertisement would go to the talent agent, and the, and they would say, "Well, here's what we're looking for." And the talent agent would say, "Well, here's you know ten or fifteen people for you to listen to." And so you would have a really decent chance of of winning an audition against like fourteen other people. Right. But now auditions are going everywhere. You're you're auditioning against hundreds of people for each, even just a little uh, you know a, a little local spot sometimes. So it's 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 tough. But as I said, it's easier to get into the business, and it's certainly easier to have your own home studio. When I built my home studio, I had to actually build it from the ground yeah. up and have actual equipment, right? <laughs> An actual mixing board and all that stuff, right? Acoustic um, panels and the whole the works. Yep, yeah, yep. Yeah. So it's it's a lot easier to, as I said, to get into it now, Ben. It's a, but it's a little bit harder to to win. Uh, gigs, you know. <laughs> and so back in the day, you'd have an agent. And I guess when you did that first copy, did you go out and get an agent or how did that work? Well, I actually took some coaching, uh, voice coaching from okay. a, a very successful guy here in Atlanta. And then he helped me put together a demo. And then I went to see if I could get an agent. And, and so uh, I've studied, I sing and I've studied with a vocal coach, but what does a voiceover coach teach you? What do you work on? Do you have drills? What do you practice? Well, basically, you have to be able to read well. And so the vo- the coach is going to be able to help you articulate and learn how to, and be, basically, voice that act, being a voiceover artist is acting, but it's just mm-hmm. acting for the voice. Right. And so you really have to learn to read different types of things. Um, many times, if you're doing commercial work, many times it, for a 60-second spot, they'll give you a, a script that's 65 seconds. And so sometimes you have to learn to, to yeah. really read fast. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah, you have to, there are just some basic skills that you have to know. You know, you have to know how to use the microphone, you know, you right. don't learn not to pop your peas and things right. like that. 
Well, and it's one thing to have something in front of you and another thing to read it well, like reading copy, a teleprompter or something. Exactly. It's not, it's a skill. It makes me think of that movie Anchorman where they're like, oh, who put the question mark? You know, I am Ron Burgundy. You know, who put the question mark? <laughs> he always reads it perfectly well, that kind of thing. Um, yeah, that's, that's very true. Yes, reading, reading is really important. Yeah, and so then you, you had a vocal coach, and then how did you get your an agent to be interested in you at that point? Well, I believe I was already with an agent for um, on camera acting. Mm. Okay, and um, and so I just you know stayed with that same agent, and at the time uh, for many years actually I was exclusive with that agent, and so mm. I had a little bit of extra cachet. Uh, a little yeah. bit, a little bit of extra help there because they would always recommend me. That's another nice thing. You, you know, the, the client could go to the agent. The agent knows all the talent, and they could say, "Well, this person would be really great, and she's, you know, she takes direction well, and she always shows up, and right. <laughs> all of that kind of thing." Basics. And so, the what's different now in the voiceover industry is that we all have to be our own directors, mm-hmm. our own engineers. Right. And our own, you know, promotional people. Right. And so it's tough. We have to do it all. Um, and of course, there are there are still agencies, but, you know, it's not as effective as it used to be because, the, as I said, they don't have that same process of the client going to the agent and talking about it. Of course. They just, you know, go to the agency and then just, you know, listen to a bunch of auditions. Cattle call. Yeah. And yeah. so then your agent would come to you and say, hey, I've got this thing. I think it might be good for you. Um, we'd like to get you an audition. Then what? Would you go into a recording studio somewhere and, and read some stuff? Or how did the no, audition the agency, go? The agency had just a little room with a, you know, a recorder, tape okay. recorder at that time. Yeah. And okay. a microphone and stuff. And so you would just put that down, you know. And, huh. you know, it, it worked out because basically you were competing against people in the same situation. Right. You know, it's like you didn't just have this awful <laughs> sound and you were competing yeah. against someone with, you know, this amazing <laughs> booth. So, um, yeah, it really, it was a lot more fun, actually. For a person like myself, I'm, I'm pretty introverted. And so uh, it was really helpful for me to have someone else doing all that kind of stuff, you know, hunting down the work and promoting me to other people. Right. Let's go back a little bit and talk about, before we get to the voiceover stuff, you were a musician sort of at heart at first. You played piano at a very young age and took lessons and were adept at it and learned by ear. When you took lessons, were you classically trained at that point? Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah, I took classical piano for, for many years. And every good boy does fine and yep. do all of that. Yep. Yeah, all that. Yep. <laughs> and and you must have had a good piano teacher because you stuck with it. Or did you just have that motivation as a piano player? You know, I took lessons for, geez, I think about 12 years. Okay. So uh, I can remember I didn't, you know, I didn't really, I, it was kind of a superficial thing. I wasn't that really that into it. And especially because I could play by ear. Mm-hmm. And I knew I wasn't going to be a concert pianist, you know. Mm-hmm. So, um, you know, I just, I sort of was just going through the motions, I think. Okay. And especially the first couple of years that I took lessons, I would ask my teacher to play my lesson for me before she left. Oh, oh would you play that for me? And because I had such a good ear. I didn't touch the piano all week, and then she'd come and I'd play the thing. <laughs> oh, wow. Yeah. Oh, wow. I, I, yeah. 
I started. I took piano in kindergarten, but I hated my my piano teacher, and so oh. that that didn't work out that well. Yeah. And then I then took up guitar when I was eleven, and I loved that because I thought it was really super cool. And the thing with me was I would try to, you know, I'd spend a half hour in my lesson trying to play some Led Zeppelin riff, and it was just painful, you know, listening to a beginner try to learn to play guitar. And then at the end of my lesson, to your point, I would ask my teacher, you know, could you play it? And he would sit there and, you know, play it. And it was like a magic trick to me. I couldn't believe that it could actually be done like that. And I thought, I literally thought to myself, I'll never be able to do that. And it's sort of amazing that a decade later, I was teaching guitar lessons to right. kids, and I had come full circle and saw it. And and really, it's just a, a function of, you know, if you do G to D a thousand times, you'll be pretty good at it. Yeah, exactly. My husband's a, a wonderful guitar player, and you should check out his site. It's Rick Hinkle, Rick at Audio Cam Music. So Audio Cam Music, and um, he's uh, he's very much into rock and blues, mm. R and B. All that stuff. He plays. You play in a band together still, do you? Yes. Yes. Well, we used to. We, you know, the two bands that we were playing in just for fun over the last couple of years, uh, got really got put on major hold because of COVID. So mm-hmm. I'm not sure what. <laughs> I'm not exactly sure what what shape they'll be in by the time we get back to to being able to play out. Well, I saw a couple of YouTube videos with your band. I think it was the the Boomers Gone Wild. Maybe oh, it yeah. was. <laughs> Is that yeah. him playing guitar in that band? Yeah. 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 So what's amazing about that is, and the and the crowd was was going crazy. Oh was, yeah, they and, loved it. And you all are total pros. You know, it's very easy to tell when you've got a band full of pros who know what they're doing. You know, the stops were tight, the vocals were on key, and you know, basic stuff. But it was better than that. It was really well done. And there's the pros and cons between that and the 20 year old band, right? Cause when you're right. 20, you have youth and energy and you're fearless, but it's like mic technique is bad and right. it's hard the stops and people aren't listening as well. And that kind of thing. And then you look at, you know, your band, I was like instantly, Oh, well, these, these folks are well, pro- the seasoned pros. Band, actually I'm, I'm the least gifted person in that band. <laughs> and, um, all of them are professional musicians. Yeah. It's but obvious. the thing about that particular circumstance, we play in this little club. Um, well, we used to play once a month. Um, and we would just, play on the fly. I mean, we'd play stuff that we'd never played before. Mm-hmm. As long cuz we all played by ear as well. Yeah. And so, as long as we had some sort of idea how it went, we we bumble through almost anything. So. Yeah. Well, did you drive your piano teacher crazy then if you were trying to play by ear or was the piano teacher and okay? She finally figured it out. She finally figured it out. Yeah. It, did, I was caught. I forget how how long it took, but right. Did your parents play music? Were they forcing you to take? No, piano? my parents. My parents are not musical at all. In fact, my mother. I don't know that my mother could even carry a tune, hmm. um, and she wasn't even interested in music. My dad was very interested in music. Um, certainly not the type I was interested in because you know my parents uh, grew up in the age of the the, the Sinatra type stuff and yeah. the, the older of music course. like that. And uh, so, no, I don't know where, you know, somewhere in the DNA soup. Yeah. I ended up with the music gene, and I'm ex- extremely grateful. It's, I mean, it's basically been the key to my life. Yeah, music. no kidding. Yeah. Well, yeah. then, so you were a musician, and you started doing musical theater in high school. I, mm-hmm. I never did musical theater, but my brother did, and I had friends. Um, and I know it's it's a pretty tight click. Did you feel like that in high school, that you had a music theater click, or was it different? 
Not really. I, I went to high school in a very small town. Uh, it was a really tiny town. And so everybody was pretty much mixed together. I think mm. you, you ended up, uh, we ended up being friends with whomever we were in particular classes with. You know, right. there were the advanced classes, and then there were the, people, the, the science people and all, you know, that sort of thing. Um, in college, I did a little bit of musical theater, but then I just discovered that I, I thought that I was a much better singer and uh, voice person than I was uh, right. an actor. You started playing in bands in college, mm-hmm. right? Is that where you first kind of maybe got the real bug? Or at some point you thought, hey, I can make a career out of this band thing? You know, I don't know that I ever really thought that. I that's one of the reasons that I didn't, you know, major in music and and have being a professional musician as a goal. I didn't mm. I just didn't know it was possible that you could make a living doing that. Right. <laughs> and and sometimes you can't. Yeah. <laughs> but, a lot of times. Um, yeah. Um so it it was kind of just a gradual I kind of I've been so lucky in my life. Look, quick, let me hit some wood. And um <laughs> It's you know I, that that I was able to just fall into things. I mean, I would do different things, and then something would seem right, and I would go along that path for a while, and then something it would change, and and uh, so I've just been very fortunate that way. Well, it sounds like you fo- sort of follow the energy in the thing where where it feels good and it feels right. You're you don't seem afraid to follow that energy, which is cool. Well, I was fortunate also when uh, first moving to Atlanta. I guess I was here a couple of years before I met um, a wonderful person and great piano player, Jim Gibson, here Mm. in town. And he was uh, kind of like a a band leader. And this was during the time when they would just have what were called pickup bands. You know, you'd have the band leader, and then they'd figure out how much money they had, and you could figure out how many musicians you could hire. And so, you know, and then gradually, I guess it was... It was like the early 80s to mid 80s. And, um, you know, Jim just said, you know, I, I keep hiring the same people over and over. Why don't we make this a band oh, <laughs> and cool. actually, you know, record a demo and, and get a photograph and all that kind of stuff. Get right. headshots. So, right. You know. And what was that band called? Uh, well, it started off as the Gibson Bennett Band. OK, so yeah. you're like a founder. Uh, sort of. Sort yeah. of. <laughs> It, and basically, what that meant was that I I contributed to the administrative aspect. Of oh, gotcha. <laughs> yeah. Right. I mean, my first band, we were eleven, and the big thing was trying to figure out what our band name was going to be. And our bass player came up with the name Ground Zero because I thought it was because we practiced in the garage. But oh. <laughs> he was the the smarter one of the bunch, and he said, "No, it's when a nuclear bomb explodes." And of course, as preteen boys, we thought that was totally awesome. So, right. <laughs> so we became Ground Zero. But then we discovered there was another band called Ground Zero, or a bunch of bands. So then we changed our name to Zero, which was just sort of a, a going nowhere kind of name. Yeah. <laughs> um, and then on from there. So then you were playing in bands. You were in Atlanta. You started doing some jingles, I guess, because you were a good vocalist and you were hanging mm-hmm. around the recording studio in Atlanta, or how did that yeah. happen? Yeah, yeah. I actually uh, went around to different studios and, you know, gave them a, a demo of, of my, you know, singing, and I ended up uh, doing a lot of jingle work, especially in the 70s and 80s. That was like the heyday, th- the best jingles ever. Oh, uh, yeah. In, in those days. And then at some point, 
we we have to talk about this. You you got a, some gigs doing backup vocals for Roy Orbison and Burt Bacharach. I mean, geez, yeah. that's like I saw a picture of you at like Austin City Limits with Roy right. Orbison. That's crazy. What was that? Yeah, How was that all? A, um, well, once again, it the um, it started off with Burt Bacharach, and I believe that was 1981, and okay. he was doing a tour of the South, and he was starting his concert in Atlanta, okay. and so he brought a small rhythm section with him and he brought two vocalists and then he hired three more vocalists from Atlanta and I was fortunate enough to be one of those people. Wow, cool. And uh, oh, that was just amazing because it was the first time I'd ever been involved on stage working with someone and surrounded by a complete orchestra. He'd wow. hired the Atlanta Symphony Orchestra amazing. To, for the tour and it was... Oh, Oh, it's just incredible. Where did you play? Where was the show? Uh, Chastain Park. Beautiful. Did you have a yeah. good night? Or was it like June in in Atlanta or something super hot? I really don't remember because it was such an exciting thing. I, I don't I thought it could have been zero degrees. It would have been fine. Right. Because <laughs> it was just it was a real privilege to to be involved in that. Were and you nervous the, up on stage when that happened? Um. No, not really, because yeah. that's one of the th fun things about being a backup vocalist and not being the lead vocalist. You know, all you have to do is just sing your part and sing in tune. Yeah. You're not responsible for any of the other stuff. Right. I mean, you want to look interested and, and dress nicely and all that kind of stuff. Right. But, <laughs> but it's the, you know, it was Bert's show. And of course. so, I mean, and Roy's show. Right. Um, so, no, I wasn't really nervous. Um, but the, the Roy thing came about because vocalist that I used to work with a lot in Atlanta had moved to Nashville. Mm -hmm. And so he and another a female vocalist from Nashville and another female vocalist from Nashville were singing with Roy. And then they, they fired the soprano. I forget why. She was, I forget what she did, but they fired the soprano and they right. needed to get someone right away because they were going to, I can't remember if it was England or Australia, the first, the first gig. Anyway, I need, they needed someone who could sing the part and had a passport. And so <laughs> so my friend Richard Law said, I know Susan Bennett. <laughs> she could do it. Right. And so I, I was really a brat during that tour because I was with him for about two years. And most of the, these poor people, especially, obviously, when we had gigs in the United States, they would all have to get on a Greyhound bus, you know, and, and mm. drive there. And since I was from Atlanta, I got to fly. <laughs> oh, wow. Yeah. Yeah. Superstar. Bonus. Yeah, bonus. That was in your rider, in the green, <laughs> yeah. green M&Ms? Right. Um, what what was it like? What, was there a difference in the vibe between the Roy Orbison tour and the Burt Bacharach tour? I'm, and I'm curious to know, in particular, I've heard that Roy Orbison was notoriously shy um, and kind of shy on stage. Did you was there anything of that that you noticed, or what was different? Um, yeah, there was a very different. Of course, the music was right. Very very different. Right. Um, it basically. We were traveling uh, with the Roy Band. We weren't traveling with nearly as many musicians. You know, mm. we were traveling for for Bert. There was the whole symphony orchestra. Amazing. And so that was that was kind of interesting. Um, the Roy thing, of course, we were together almost two years, and so made made a lot of good friends with the people in the band. And it was, uh, I'd have to say, Roy. Yeah, Roy was definitely very reclusive. We almost never saw him mm. off stage. And 
he um, he was just very quiet, mm-hmm. very slow moving, and just. And I had to do a. Uh, I sang a, a duet with him. Um, I got to play the Emmy Lou Harris part of a song called "That Loving You Feeling Again." Amazing. And oh, it was so much fun. And something happened. I forget exactly what it was, but I kind of saved the day with a part. And he just and, and you know after it was over, he just turned around and me. Nice catch. <laughs> ah, nice. Like minimalist. Yeah, very minimal. Yeah. Was life on the road, did you like that? I mean, you hear musicians say they some like it, they don't, it's a grind. I don't know, what was it like for two years? That's a long time. Well, it wasn't two years straight. That mm-hmm. was the nice thing, too. Roy was not very, very ambitious at that point in time. And so I think, the, well, the longest trip we made was to Australia, and that was six weeks. Wow. But everything else was usually just a few days or a week or two weeks at the most. Um, so it wasn't as grueling. I don't think I could do that. I don't think I could spend a year on the road yeah. uh, doing backup vocals. You know, although one of my great wishes, which, which of course it will not happen at this point in time, but I would love to have been a backup singer with the Rolling Stones. Because oh, yeah. I don't have a big Lisa Fisher voice either. So <laughs> Yeah. I would have liked to have been a backup singer in the Rolling Stones or yeah, yeah. third rhythm guitar player or something. Yeah. <laughs> um, so then, and when was that with Roy Orbison? 82 and 83. So had he started the Traveling Wilburys at that point? No, that was, late, that was later okay. on in the 80s. All right. Yeah. yeah, because then there was this huge resurgence and then he, he died young in sometime yeah, in the late 80s. Yeah, he died 80s. pretty young, yeah. He was, I think, 46 when I was with him. So I think he died in his early 50s. Yeah. Yeah, he was. He'd he'd had a, a really really tough life. Uh, he'd had a lot of uh, uh, death and um, well heartache, you know. Yeah. In his life. Yeah. Well, um, I, I know we're, we're short on time. I, I can't have you on and not talk about Siri um, and all the things <laughs> right. associated with that. So tell me a little bit about how you got into this crazy gig doing the Siri voice, but at that time you didn't even know it was the Siri voice. You were just right. recording. Explain right. how and that And I've all spoken happened. to other Siri voices, and they had the same experience. You have to remember that Siri was the very first um, basic public manifestation of AI. And so we were the first ones, and so, you know, the, the start is always a little bumpy. And so... Um, when we did the recordings, I did mine starting in 2005. Mm. And the recordings that I did were called IVR recordings, Interactive Voice Response. Okay. And the scripts were very different because they were created just for sound. They were created to get all of the sound combinations in the language. And consequently, uh, they didn't really make any sense, the phrases and sentences. And every sentence had to be read exactly the same because it had to be every sound had to be consistent so it was the same it was very monotone issue was the same pitch the same pacing the same tone and because after the recordings were done technicians and computers went into the recordings extracted sounds reformed the sounds into new phrases and sentences and these are what ended up on our devices as Siri, Alexa, Cortana, all these all these uh, virtual assistants. So what happened was I did those recordings and then kind of forgot about them and then six years later um, someone emails me and said hey we're playing with this new iPhone app isn't this you? 
And I went, what? So right. I went on the Apple site and listened, and I went, yikes, how did this happen? Right. So, yeah, because the iPhone didn't even come out until 2007. So in 2005, when you were doing these recordings, I don't know, did they have that much foresight? Maybe they did. I guess the idea of Oh, I'm a, sure they did, because they they worked on AI since the 60s, I think. It's, it's right. been an ongoing you know, goal for many, many, many years. Um, I'm sure they probably did know. It's just, you know, the, the voice actors definitely didn't know. Right. And um, so... It was kind of a surprise. It was I was a bit horrified at first because you don't just get a big gig like that without auditioning. Right. And so this is yeah. another, um, you know, result of technology is that a lot of us are auditioning without even knowing it because our right. our demos will be on a lot of different sites and right. and things like that. And so um, that's how that happened. I had heard um, one of the original engineers working on the Siri project uh, who said that in looking for a voice for Siri, they were looking for someone who sounded otherworldly and had a dry sense of humor. <laughs> there you go, right? It, I mean, yeah. So, yeah, otherworldly. I'm like, mm -hmm. that's a compliment? Uh, uh, yeah, it's like, oh, thanks. <laughs> yeah, right. And so then what they were doing was they you were reading gibberish, basically, and they were looking for phonics. And then they would mm -hmm. get, make sure that you had all of the phonics and sounds. And then when they'd create a, a funny Siri joke or Siri would say something like, in a quarter mile, make a left turn or whatever right. it is. Like you didn't ever, you never actually said that. They just yeah, yes. pulled as the sounds. As we progressed, no, as we progressed, originally we were just reading uh, just craziness. Like, you know, cow hoist in the tub hut today. <laughs> say fossa, ask fossa, ask fussy. You know, things like you could just hear, right. hear the sounds that it was made for sound. Um, but then gradually, as you know, as it kept going on, uh, we did end up reading sentences. And I know when I did the, the recordings that became GPS voices, of course, we read entire uh, addresses and things like that. Okay. But wow. um, yeah, literally, was, literally like reading the phone book. Oh, yeah. It was very, very tedious work. I can remember that um, a few years ago, they um, Nuance is the name of the company that did all these recordings. And I think Apple may have bought them because I know Apple got all their voices from there. So okay. um, basically, they wanted to put me under contract for five years. And I had been working through a liaison company here Who in Who did Atlanta, Nuance? Pardon? Who did? Who wanted to put you under contract? Nuance, Nuance? wanted okay. to put me under contract through this liaison company, and I told them, I said, "Geez, I don't know." I said, "I think I've killed enough gray matter. <laughs> I think I've killed <laughs> enough brain cells with this stuff." Yeah. So I don't know. I could do this for another five years. So, and it was at a particular time in my life. You know, if I'd been ten or twenty years younger than I was, you know, when they offered that job, it, maybe I would have said yes. That would but, be a good like Twilight Zone episode where you just read gibberish all day long until you go crazy. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, because the rich, the initial recordings were four hours a day, five days a week, and it was tedious. It was really tedious because I'd have to read things like you know. Those sentences I just read to you before were kind of funny and quirky, but then there was a lot of stuff that you had to get all the different vowel sounds and the consonant sounds. So, for instance, you'd have take a word and then replace the vowel. So you'd say something like, "Say the shrouding again. Say the shrading again. Say the shrouding again. Say the shredding again. Say the shredding again. Say the shredding again." 
Oh, right. <laughs> and and all it has to be kind of monotone in the same pitch so that they can seam them together later. That's right. Yep. And that's why typically, you know, you say, well, you know, DJs don't have any trouble talking for four hours, but they get a lot of breaks and they, they you know, they can modulate their voices, you know, they talk like this for a minute. And then as we all you right. know, go up right. and down in our vocal register as we're speaking, not for this stuff. It was just all along this little straight line. You need like a whiskey there. or something to do that. Oh, I, man. Yeah. I wish I'd had some of that, yeah. <laughs> actually. <laughs> yeah. And then so so then six years later, so, I mean, that's forever. And all of a sudden, you're like, whoa. And they, you, you had no heads up. It was just, it came yeah. out and someone said, hey, is this you? Yeah. And that was the 4S, I think. That was the 4, yes. four yep. Steve or whatever. 4S. No, the 4 Siri. Yeah, for Siri. S for Siri. Yeah. I heard somebody said because it was right around the time when Steve Jobs was had the cancer thing, and that they were saying it was for Steve. I think it came out right near when he passed. It did. He he died the day after Siri was introduced, and he was very very involved in the development of the Siri app. And so at least he got to see her come to fruition on the iPhone, but he did not get to see the incredible impact that she had on just everything. Yeah, I have just a couple more questions. So stemming from that, it blows up, and then all of a sudden you're like on Oprah and Letterman and CNN and and all these talk shows. Was that weird? Had you done stuff like that before, or was it just kind of fun? Well, I had done um, a lot of on-camera work when I was younger. And the first first thing I did was, I believe, the, the CNN morning show, and... And I can just remember, you know, they were giving me directions, say, well, you look right into the camera and do this and this. And, this. and I thought, oh, I remember how to do this. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and it ended up being a lot of fun. I mean, I, I had a chance, I got a chance to meet a lot of incredible people. No kidding. And just, it was, it was a lot of fun. Well, and then yeah. on the Letterman show, I looked up a snippet of that, and it was kind of hilarious because I guess at least it looked like they didn't realize that you were going to be part of the program. And that Dave was, didn't realize. And Dave so he was kind realize. of ripping on you. He was. He was mean. <laughs> he was really mean. But then afterwards, Tom Hanks came on and said, so Dave... I guess you missed rehearsal today, huh? <laughs> yeah, right. Well, because then you start, the funny thing was, like, it, he was building into the top 10, and the top 10 was about the iPhone and about Siri, and I guess he just thought it was topical current events, and then he starts on this riff about the Siri voice, because you had just sort of come out as the Siri voice, and then it it, it comes up that you are go- have read the top 10, yeah. and then he realized it, and and said something he had some sort oh, of he joke. was really yeah he was really mean about the oh susan bennett from atlanta georgia she couldn't come be on the show yeah. <laughs> kind of thing what had happened was i had just flown home from new york and i was supposed to be going to los angeles it, and they wanted me to come up to live and do the show live and i said well geez, I was just there and now I have to fly to LA. Really? You want me to just fly up there for that? And so my agent just said, I'll just let it go. Record at home. So I recorded in my, my, my recording booth at home and, and sent it up there. <laughs> and oh yeah, he was, he was not happy. Yeah. Yeah. So that, yeah, that was a, a, a funny view. And then that sort of spawned then a public speaking career because you had talked with uh, Steve Wozniak and then did something on stage with him. And he was like, you know, you're pretty good on stage. And then so yeah. you start this, pub, you've done it, a Ted talk. And did, mm-hmm. you know, what was it like when you're like, all right, I'm on stage and I have to prepare a presentation or a speech about something? Like, how did you figure out what to say? 
Yeah, it's funny because I'm I'm not a good creative writer at all, but I'm a very good at exposition. And so I just figured out what people would want to hear. I knew they would want to hear about the recordings. Right. And then I talk a bit about voiceover work and then I do a lot of different voices to illustrate you know, there, there are so many different aspects to voiceover. And then the third part, you know, when you do a TED Talk, you have to try to you know, include something that's motivational or right. helpful to people. And so um, then I talked to people mm. about how it was really hard for me to accept the fact that I was Siri. Mm. Um, because, and I've talked to other series about that, too, is that, you know, on the one hand, you think, well, wow, I'm, I'm kind of like the new voice of Apple. I mean, that's really cool. Right. And on the other hand, but, you know, I never spoke to anybody from Apple. I never got a check from Apple, that's for sure. Right. And so just kind of, gee, how should I handle this? And so it was a really great life lesson, mm-hmm. um, a great life lesson in acceptance mm-hmm. and, you know, just dealing with things that you really can't do anything about and try to figure out a way to make it work for you as opposed to against you. And so um, I met Steve Wozniak at a tech conference uh, for this company called Tech Media, and he was just the nicest man. Mm. And um, very, very open and, and willing to talk to everybody. He's, he and his wife are very involved in education. And so he was very generous with his time with all the people that wanted to talk to him and ask him questions about technical stuff and education and everything else. And he took me aside and said, well, you, you seem really comfortable on stage. And he said, you really ought to think about doing this. And so the very first one I did was my accountant. It was on the, the chamber of Car- in the Chamber of Commerce. And he said, would you come, come speak at our luncheon? And so I had to sit down and come up with something. Right. And so that was kind of fun. It's, 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 I've, I've really enjoyed it. It's really been fun. What was the Chamber of Commerce like as an audience? Well, it was, you know, it was, it was a fairly small crowd. They were, they were fine. Yeah. I mean, they, they laughed where they were supposed to laugh, right. which is nice. Right. <laughs> Instead of hearing just a pin drop, that would be bad. Yeah. And, uh, but it was in this funky little room in a hotel where they, you know, they, you know, so they put um, uh, dividers. And right. it was like in one of these, you know, it just, I had a friend video it because I, I thought, well, I want to be able to, to promote myself doing this. Right. And. I couldn't use the video because the room was so ugly. Oh. It just had, it just, you know, the beige wall. Yeah. We didn't even have flowers or anything like that around. Right. It was just... <laughs> like, ah, uh, throw so, it away. Yeah. So that was the first one. And then, um, you know, I just uh, was fortunate enough to get a fabulous agency after I came out as Siri. And mm. um, Wes Stevens and Tom Lawless at Vox in Los Angeles. And they were nice enough to step out of their comfort zone. It's a, basically a voiceover agency. Wow. And uh, they stepped out of their comfort zone to rep me as a speaker as well. So, yeah, it's, it's been great. Very cool. And then it's, it also sounds like humor has played an important part of your life, from what I can tell. It sounds like you like a good laugh. And then oh, yeah. Siri, you know, according to Siri, you have an otherworldly and humorous sensibility. And is that true? Do you, do you find a good laugh to be something you're striving for? Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. I think if you don't have humor in your life, you better get it <laughs> because, you know, there, I mean, humor can really be a lifesaver sometimes, but also it just makes you feel good. You yeah. Know? Yeah, of course. Okay. A couple final questions for you that I like to ask. What was your first record that you owned? 
Going back to music. Oh, the first record that I owned. Oh, wow. Well, see, I, I have a brother who's eight years older. So I got into rock and roll at age six. Okay. You know, and he was 14 and bringing home all this stuff. Right. And so I would buy 45s. Right. On my own. I'd save up and buy 45s, and I can remember. And for our younger uh, listeners, the 45 is a, sing oh, yeah. <laughs> a single. It's a, yeah, it's, a, it's, a, yeah, it's a single. It's 45 RPM. Right. And um, it's, like, it's like vinyl, but a smaller version of vinyl. Right. Uh, gosh, I had so many different things. I, I had Elvis records for sure. Okay. Well, yeah. and the companion question to that is what, what was formative to you in your musical beginnings? So, Elvis. Well, I just really liked most rock music. Okay. Yeah. And then, you know, as I got older, of course, you know, I was uh, at the height of Beatlemania. I was a teenager. And so, so yeah, the Beatles, Rolling Stones. Rolling Stones remain my favorite band to okay. this day. Yeah. I, I often say that if I have to go to a, a desert island or something, that if you could only take one thing, I think one of the things would be um, Exile on Main Street. Yeah, I Just, think I would. I think I would do a greatest hits. That would be good. <laughs> greatest hits album. <laughs> if it's three things, I would also bring tiki torches, which is annoying, but it seems like it's always fun if you go somewhere with tiki torches. Um, <laughs> I hadn't thought about that, but yeah. <laughs> that's a and, good point. And then maybe the third one would be a guitar of some kind. Oh yeah, gotta have your music. Yeah, I I played guitar in college because I was part of a singing group. Mostly a cappella. They had a couple of guitar players kind of, you know, uh, accompanying us. And both the guitar players were graduating. So there was a girl in my class who was a very good guitar player. And I kind of said, well, I have a guitar. <laughs> I'm not very good at it. But uh, so I, I started playing then. And I still have my beautiful little Martin D18. Nice. And yeah. And uh, but I I. I found guitar to be frustrating because it mm. it wasn't intuitive for me, you know. And I could sit down at a piano and just play anything. It's not really you know, intuitive guitar, for anybody, I don't yeah, think. Yeah, and, for sure. Uh, so yeah, so I let my husband does all the guitar playing. <laughs> right. Well, some people have a, this quirky mind where where it makes sense. Um, certainly, when I would teach guitar to young students, I would use pia really piano when I was teaching, trying to teach any theory, because it's almost impossible to teach theory on a guitar fretboard. Right, right, yeah. Um, yeah. <laughs> so I think piano's a, a, an outstanding instrument to have as your primary instrument, or it seems like you can jump from that to a lot of different things. Yeah, it, and, and you you'll find that a lot of musicians, especially famous musicians. Even if their main instrument is guitar, they also play piano. I mean, my my right. husband plays decent piano for sure. He's a great guitar player, but he's also not a bad piano player, you know, especially for pop, rock, and soul music, that kind of stuff. For sure. Yeah. I think when you're a young person starting out and you want to get into the entertainment business in some way, you think that it's going to be linear. And again, like we were saying at the beginning, it's it's my experience that that's just nowhere near the case mm -hmm. or, the, or the truth. But there's a lot that goes into all of those years. And then all of a sudden, it's not till 2011, where you have this Siri thing happened. Yeah. And yeah. it just is like well, a rocket ship. I think that one thing that you have to be careful of when you if you have a specific goal, or if you have a specific dream, you know, don't forget to enjoy, you know, the process of getting there. And also in the process of getting there, don't forget to try different things. You never know, there might be something that really is, you know, for you that you've never discovered yet. 
Right. So, you know, don't don't try to be uh, too narrow-minded about it. I've really enjoyed talking to you. you. This has been a really fun interview. I've done hundreds of interviews, and they <laughs> they haven't all been this that interesting. <laughs> well, I appreciate that. Thank you. No, it's been a blast, and, and you're so much fun, and uh, it's cool that we have someone like you in Atlanta. Mm-hmm. Atlanta's got a, a strong contingent to claim its own, so we're glad to have you. Yeah, Atlanta, Atlanta's really come into its own in the last few years. It's a huge draw for radio and TV production. I think we're either second or third in the country. Right. Behind New York and L.A. Right. Just and, throw uh, a bunch of yeah. tax advantages at production companies. That's like, right. Yeah. That's right. Do it in Georgia. So come on down. Yeah. Well, Susan, thank you so much. I really appreciate it. Have a great day. Thank you. Thank you, Susan Bennett, for talking with us today and describing the twists and turns a career in entertainment can take. And as always, thanks to you for listening. If you like what you hear, please subscribe to the podcast. And if you have questions or comments, send me a note at brentonhundpodcast at gmail.com. Follow me on Facebook and Instagram for extras. This was a blast, as always, and I'm already looking forward to another episode with you soon. For now, have a great day.